Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of New Model Advisors Forecast. In this edition, we are once again diving into ESG. Joining me today is someone who knows everything about the topic. Whether it's SFDR or Green Gilts, Margarita Kirikosian has been leading the way for CityWire when it comes to socially responsible investing. As host of the Let's Talk About ESG podcast, she has spoken to some of the most important people from asset managers. While her work on suitability and diversity for our pan-European sister title, CityWire Selector, has won awards. It's very great to have you with us, Margarita. Firstly, I want to start by talking about regulation. You've written extensively on what's happening in Europe. Could you explain in a bit more detail what's come in? Thank you, Charles. It's very nice to be here, first and foremost. When it comes to Europe, I think there are two very important pieces uh, when it comes to regulation. Well, one is SFDR, which is a Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation, and the second one is uh, the Green EU Taxonomy. One important thing to keep in mind in here, although the UK did leave uh, the EU, I think it's quite, yeah, indeed, as we all know. Uh, but that doesn't also mean that companies based in the UK can just forego those regulations altogether. After speaking to a couple of key asset managers in the UK, I actually found that they were saying that if they had Irish domiciled funds, or for that matter, distribute products into Europe, they still have to comply with SFDR. Yeah. So going in more detail what it actually means in practice. So the first piece that got implemented is for companies to uh, actually facilitate what kind of article each strategy they run belongs to. And it's important to keep in mind that there are three key article articles to bear in mind. One is Article 6. So mm. this is all funds, all managed products. The second type is Article 8. So it's general ESG, funds that promote social and environmental characteristics. And Article 9, so sustainable, funds that have a sustainable investment objective. Sounds very similar to me, probably to you. Yes, it does. What's, what is the difference between... Um, well, here is... The devil is in the detail. And when we look at Article 8, which seems to be the most commonly used for now by asset managers... Basically, they have to show the intention they want to have either promote social and environmental characteristics, but they don't necessarily have to have a certain impact with it. Now, here comes a problem because the interpretation of what that actually technically means is wildly different. And while some asset managers can just go for an easy one, the others who actually have experience in ESG might be reluctant to assign such a big significance to a certain strategy. Um, so are you saying that perhaps some of those with more experience in ESG, sustainable investing, uh, are losing out with these new rules? Pretty much. Uh, well, it's not necessarily, but they might be the ones being reluctant to actually go fully into it because they are worried that they're not going to match rigorous mm. monitoring and disclosures for this Article 8 requirement. So this is kind of like one little caveat in there. Uh, another interesting thing to keep in mind as well is that selectors who I spoke to, European ones especially, are saying that it's all good and nice, but Article 8 might become a tick box exercise. Because of that wide interpretation, it can almost be just anything, really, at this stage. And that puts us into a position, what does it actually 
technically change, right? And it seems like for now, the kind of like the most clear cut way is to look at Article 9 strategies that have to have a specific impact. So they need to prove that their investment objective is sustainability by kind of like what the companies they invest in are doing, like, for example, producing wind turbines or solar panels. And this is the kind of tangible thing you can deliver. That's why there are fewer Article 9 strategies. Another thing that I was told as well, if we don't put high enough hurdles on this, as a result, we might need to come up with Article 10, Article 11, because the more people are able to have those, uh, the less special and unique it becomes. So you just have to keep adding new new categories to make it well, identifiable. Hopefully not, uh, but this is the situation uh, we're in right now. And just to give you kind of like a flavor of that, um, Morningstar published a report about the first 20 days of uh, mm. the SFDR earlier this year. and. They also disclosed the 10 asset managers with the most Article 8 and Article 9 funds. So top of the list is Amundi with 529 funds that fall in either of those categories. Second is BNP Paribas with 313. And third is Nordea with 209. So now those numbers might have shifted already, obviously, because it's been kind of like some time since uh, that report was published. But these are a lot of st strategies when you think about that. Yeah. And will they actually be sustainable in equal measure is a very good question. And by the way, in the top 10, there is not a single UK-based asset manager, to my knowledge. Maybe I have missed somebody, but like they are all European companies well that that's an interesting angle that uh, perhaps we can go down in terms of i wondered how you mentioned at the beginning that obviously despite brexit these rules are being used by uk asset managers but do you think uk asset managers are embracing them in the same way it's a very good question i think they want to uh the problem with that i think if the uk clients are not asking for it and especially if the regulator is not asking for it then your incentives are really low aren't they and it yeah. seems like well like it's a very interesting situation because the uk was part of those discussions about sustainable regulations before brexit and they did contribute a fair bit to how that regulation did shape up but to this day and i might have missed something i don't think there is an equivalent to sfdr in the uk so they are hinting on the fact that they are going to have something similar, but they haven't quite introduced it here, which kind of like UK asset managers who already went through the whole kind of categorization of their products and strategies. They are like, well, we hope that this is going to be quite similar. Otherwise, costs are going to be just extraorbitant. They are already very high because of all those paper pieces you have to use to like explain Article 8, Article 9. Um, and then if you have another similar regulation that requires something completely different, you're just going to drown in paperwork. So killing more trees, basically, doesn't sound sustainable to me, does it? Not, not at all. I, I wonder, one thing I've been reading on this morning even was the uh, EU taxonomy. Yes. And the UK's plans to follow suite. And it seems very much that it is... you wants to copy the EU, from my <laughs> understanding. Uh, maybe add a few extra bells and whistles to make it look like it hasn't just copied the homework of the, the boy next door. <laughs> but is it really, it, it, you know, it, do you think we'll see something similar with SFDR? 
Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think that's quite likely. And well, with the whole EU taxonomy, that's a separate conversation always because oh, really? uh, yeah, well, th- it has to be implemented. So they for, published the first draft of the companies that fall into the green or brown categories in the beginning of this year. So green company is a company that is sustainable in their view. Brown well, environmentally sustainable, yes. Okay. But there are loads of issues with that as well. So, well, the implementation will be fully rolled out in 2022. So we are almost there. So for now, the EU taxonomy is not implemented and fully, and asset managers don't have to report on the amount of green and brown assets they have in their funds. But this is something, this is the design. So this is something they should be able Mm. to say, 30% of this fund is green, uh, 40% of that fund is brown, for instance. So that's why this exists. But it's also quite um, hotly debated because, for instance, there were reports as well about natural gas being included in the kind of green category or nuclear is being discussed as well. And this doesn't sound very kind of like encouraging to me personally no. from the environmental perspective, even though you know that you need these industries to keep functioning for like industries to keep functioning for countries to keep functioning if our end goal is climate change mitigation well there is a lot uh, up for a debate in here and there is also this problem the eu is a big block right and we already had a bit of a pushback from uh countries like greece romania saying that you know, it's going to be punishing us and all the countries that are producing coal are going to be feeling either left in the cold or kind of like punished or pressured. So there is a lot of political wrestling you have to do in there. And this is just the beginning of it, unfortunately. And yeah, if the UK joins in, I think they will have very similar problems to that. Yeah. Yeah. Across different regions, you mean? Uh, yeah, well, uh, they will have very similar problems to the EU in terms of navigating what is green, what is not. Mm. And uh, yeah, another problem is if the company is domiciled outside of Europe, do the rules apply? Do they get disclosures that they need to categorize it one way or another? So there, there is a whole can of worms we haven't even started opening, let's say, but you know, it's coming. So we'll probably see, and a lot of people do, in all the honesty, even though they complain about like SFDR, for instance, they're actually quite positive about it because the ultimate goal of having that in place is to combat greenwashing. And as faulty as it is, Europe, and that's something that I've heard from asset managers many a time, is leading the way. And this is the best we've got for now. So unfortunately, unfortunately, we'll have to follow suit in the UK as well. And do you think that will happen? Do you think there is the appetite to apply these things? And a linked question there, if an advisor, say, wants to look at green, green, how green a fund is under the SFDR rules, where would they find that information? Mm-hmm. So, look, I think the reason why it's likely to happen, or at least likely to spread to the UK, is uh, the end consumer. Because if clients want to have greener portfolio or more environmentally friendly portfolio, they will ask their advisors or their kind of like wealth managers to actually go out of their way and explain, like, do they actually have a green portfolio? Otherwise, they will just walk like through the door. So I think there is an incentive from clients and the pressure is ramping up. 
In terms of where they can look it up, uh, financial advisors, I mean, well, this is also another sensitive area, I think, mm. because there are so many ESG databases these days and ESG data input points that it's overwhelming for even the biggest firms out there. Uh, you know, it's kind of for smaller financial advisors, it can feel quite overwhelming, I would say. A good way of kind of like thinking about it, I think, is pick the right partners and collaborate. Because I think if you want to make change, especially from the investment perspective, you need to find the right companies that are actually organizing themselves around industry group like Climate 100 Plus uh, are constantly engaging with big oil and gas companies to push them towards decarbonization. So you have to kind of like keep a note of companies for firstly that take part in those initiatives mm. because that way you will see that they are serious. And secondly, there are a couple of excellent nonprofit efforts uh, in that regard. Share Action publishes a report on asset managers there that are doing the best job on and the envir environmental side and social side every year from my memory. And this is where you can at least start thinking about, hmm, maybe this company is doing something right. Um, but generally, from my experience, and that's not to kind of like completely put UK companies to one side, European companies do tend to set the trend in these matters. Okay, so they should be looking to Europe is your answer. I don't think, well, I think with the UK companies, they still can catch up. It's just they are lagging behind, like the US companies are lagging behind a little bit. But if you kind of like set yourself about it seriously, you can lead by innovation, right? You maybe develop more sophisticated ways of measurement of sustainable aspects like environmental, social impact and things like that. And if you are ahead of the curve on that, well, then everybody else will be following you. So it's down to companies, I think, where they want to stand on this. And if they completely ignore it, well, it's hard for me to see how that will kind of constitute a sustainable future. Of course. Uh you, you were touching upon this a little bit there, but the social side mm -hmm. kind of fascinates me because it seems to me the environmental side is quite an easy thing to measure in a way. I mean, I say easy with any quote marks around mm -hmm. it. There's obviously a lot of uh, information that goes into that. But you do have that data, whether it's carbon emissions, whether it's the amount of paper printed, whether it's water usage. How do you measure the social impact and does that come into this stuff like SFDR? Because again, you've, you've said stuff about the taxonomy, green, brown. It, it doesn't seem to me that the social side is being included in this yet, but I might be being unfair there. Uh, it's a very interesting point you're making. And when we look at the Article 8 categorization, it says general ESG funds that promote social and environmental mm. characteristics. So social does come into that now. You are completely right that environmental things are easier to measure. Even carbon footprint, for example, is easier than some social metric. And just to give you kind of like an example of that, I've been talking to um, head of responsible investment in Royal London Asset Management, uh, Ashley Hamilton Claxton, and she was explaining that they had to delay the implementation of the level two text and just to go through the jargon there, what that meant that that was exactly about disclosures. So it's mm. like 10 to 15 metrics that asset managers have had to report on, uh, on certain aspects, either of environmental or social kind of like situations and issues. And she was saying, well, yeah, carbon footprint yes. is 
measurable, but what about gender pay gap? Uh, this is not something that you maybe have lying around and not every company actually reports on it. That's why as a result of many companies actually complaining and pushing back against that, they did delay it, I think, six months or so. So that's one thing. And uh, after talking to an NIP, Paul Shawfield, uh, he was also highlighting the fact that, yes, they want to make social their kind of the whole key point about what they do with ESG, but it's really hard. Like, for example, mental health of employees, right? How do you measure that unless the company actually does deliver it to yeah. you? And the only kind of solution to that they are left with is actively ask companies to talk about it. So you don't get if you don't ask. I'm particularly interested in you bringing up the mental health there mm-hmm. because it sounds like something that you can't quite sort of legislate for. It's very much a subjective thing that you have to say, go to the CEO and they tell you something and you have to decide for yourself whether that's good policy, bad mm-hmm. policy, improving policy. That's exactly the problem. Well, uh, like in terms of social issues or governance issues, the easiest one, well, just about is gender, right? Mm. You can calculate how many women or uh, ethnic minorities are on board. So you can calculate how the ratio between those aspects is for the whole of the company. So that's something that you can kind of measure. But then when it comes to the gender pay gap, not every company actually discloses that. So yeah. that's where you are running into a problem a little bit. But I again, suppose you might say, well, I will only invest in companies that do disclose it. Well, yeah, that's that's one way of doing that. But it also doesn't kind of like it doesn't re- result in a positive change. right? No. So if there is a company that just doesn't report, but has, for example, a decent gender pay gap or like no gender gender pay gap, would they be punished then and not included in the portfolio just because they couldn't put two pieces of paper together? So that's where fund managers are mm. actually coming in to almost kind of, well, if not save the day, but like to help them, guide them, show them best practices. For instance, we know this company that is appearing in your group and they're already doing A, B and C. Do you want to know more? Do you want to actually work with us to improve disclosures and how you go about it? So that's where responsible investors actually can make a change, especially when the company is already doing all these things, but just doesn't know how to communicate them properly. I remember having this conversation with Adam Kanzer, who is head of stewardship for Americas at BNP Paribas, and we touched upon this very interesting topic of migrant workers. And he was saying that they are seriously asking companies about how they are dealing with migrant workers that are paying for their visas, because that's basically the company robbing itself of money if it's outsourced to some third party out there that just keeps their employees three months short on money. Um, So that's in the best interest of shareholders, investors, to actually start asking questions. Yeah. That's probably the most important thing and which I'm quite hopeful about because we haven't even been discussing these things as an issue that people need to raise when they're meeting companies before. And if they're already doing it, fine, show everybody how you do it, lead the way. If not, well, that might give you a signal that you might want to look elsewhere probably for your allocation and that will blow up in your face probably sooner or later. And I mean... You touched upon it there, and I think it's one of the, for me, one of the big issues is looking at stuff, not just the gender pay, but the general treatment of employees Mm -hmm. 
Um, and I guess it links as well to the whole mental health point you made earlier. How easy is that? Is it possible? And secondly, do you know if there's kind of a conflict there between a, a business that say think, says it's having a positive impact on the environment? Um, a, a good example, actually, to lead into is say Tesla, which obviously has you know, this these electric cars. It's meant to be very positive in that regard. But if you look at some of its, you know, the social output of its business, it, it, there's there's a much more arguable point about whether it is having a positive impact. Uh, it, the, it's been caught union busting. It's been caught. You know, there's been rec- records of injuries in the factories. Is there a trade-off? And is that something that's manageable for managers? Uh, I think it's very hard. Yeah. It's a very big trade-off as well, especially when a company, well, Tesla being one prime example, is producing something that holds key to decarbonization and the whole climate change situation um, in general. Well, I personally still have reservations about the management and things like that. But equally, you can't just dismiss the product that is going to revolutionize the whole industry out of hand. But you can't help but wonder as well how, again, long term this company is there for if there is like complete disregard of workers rights Mm. or their pay is really low marginal how long will it last up until they either have a burnout or they will turn around and go to the rival for instance well that's an open question i don't think anyone has solved it yet (laughs) for now unfortunately but i do think we need to start paying more attention to it and probably on that note when we think about the social side of esg We often tend to treat them separately, environmental and social side. But if you look at the bigger picture, there is a need in kind of marrying those two together. Again, bringing up Royal London, they did focus their recent efforts on their concept of the just transition. Yeah. Because when you think about it, yes, we do have energy companies, big, big oil, big polluters. But in the end of the day, they employ vast amounts of people, right? And to just kind of drop them there and say, we are closing all of those facilities tomorrow and leave them out of work, all like reskilling opportunities is going to be quite bad, right? So this is, again, obviously investors can't handle it all alone. Yeah. Policymakers have to step in, governments have to step in, um, but investors have a role to play in shouting louder about it. And not only shouting louder about it, but actually actively pressuring companies in considering these things more seriously. And well, last resort, obviously, threatening divestment or threatening kind of like decrease in their exposure. This is for now the only option I think they have. And the, this is another thing that fascinates me about the area, the whole idea of can oil companies make that transition? Can BP make that transition? Can Shell make that transition? Um, because they are important parts of the UK economy, whether we, we like it or not, or important mm-hmm. parts of the UK stock market at least. Um, there's a lot of sort of calls to divest from fossil fuels, but you seem to be saying it should be a last, a last ditch uh, attempt as opposed to the first. Mm-hmm. Well... Again, here it's all degrees. Uh, yes, shades, of course. Shades Sorry, I put words into your mouth there. No, didn't no, to. not at all. Um, because that's something I'm thinking about a lot. Uh, because you have those companies, and if you just decide as an investor or kind of like as a human being, okay, I am not investing in these companies because they are bad, it doesn't mean that all the pollution disappears from there tomorrow. 
And so an important part of this is actually finding a way to work out the companies that mm. are making that transition and reward them for that. Now, this is a tricky part because a lot of oil and energy companies came out saying we are going to be carbon neutral by 2050. Well, firstly, it's a long time frame, right? It's 30 years, right? And from conversations with fund managers, with a lot of companies actually launching climate transition funds, climate neutral funds, for instance, what they're looking at is trying to find proof that there are some interim targets. Yeah. So you need to indicate that in two years' time, you're going to be reducing the amount of oil wells, for instance, or like you will not be doing like research and development of those new oil wells that you were planning initially. So there has to be a certain degree of ramping up of the effort because you can't just go from fully kind of like non-transition into carbon neutrality overnight. And so this is so far what is available to investors. Well, obviously, using multiple data points to just back yourself up and be an active shareholder. This way, actually, equities can help you a lot. Because with bonds, you are a long-term investor, obviously. But with equities, you can go to AGMs. You can go to investor days. And even the smaller groups actually manage to kind of like make quite some noise about it. I think that hedge fund engine number one, they managed to disrupt the composition of the board of ExxonMobil. I think yes. they replaced three kind of members of the board with their nominees, which is unheard of. And it's a very tiny firm. So you can kind of make a difference if you really kind of like push for it, um, I find. Does that show in kind of SFDR rules? Because it, it sounds like you, you, those rules can be a bit prescriptive. So if you say, could a manager say when they're categorizing the fund, yes, we hold... BP and Shell, but we are engaging with them. So we are categorizing these as ESG funds. Uh, I think prescriptive is actually the opposite of what it is. Yes, okay. It's almost like you almost wish they were more specific because this is exactly kind of leaning on what you're saying here. I can't see anything speaking against an Article 8 fund mm. using that reasoning. Well, now I haven't looked at all the kind of like disclosures that are required in the level two text. Maybe there is kind of some specificity on that. But from what I understood, Article 8 could include those kind of companies now how that is going to be monitored so the fact how big and kind of like how good their progress is is up for debate i think unfortunately mm. um and so moving forward what kind of changes can you expect to see in the next few months few years obviously we've got cop 26 coming yes. up um what should we be looking out for there mm-hmm comes to uh, this, obviously, I want asset managers to take it seriously and be active mm. and engage and c kind of like call out uh, companies a bit more. It doesn't mean that you have to go and kind of like sell, uh, sell all the assets altogether. No, but you have to at least show something for yourself that you've achieved certain change in how the company operates so that that's for starters but i guess i will side as well with some asset managers saying that they can't do it alone so there is a policy that has to incentivize companies to kind of decarbonize and kind of like invest in renewable energy and that can only be done on the governmental level 
So that's why it's so important for COP26 to take place and be successful and not just a talking shop, because the policymakers will be in the same place, hopefully leaning on each other's best practices and just helping each other out to try to work out what the agenda has to be and what's the first entry point you have to kind of like reach. People are calling for here at least is it's become a is it is for them to develop a sort of global standard from that do you think that would be useful to have something that goes across the globe definitely uh i think especially when you think about emerging markets Mm. uh, this is where the biggest emissions realistically are but we can hardly blame uh, areas of the world that were kind of exploited in terms of resources for a very long time and just tell them clean up the mess that developed countries actually ask them to put there in the first place so there has to be a cooperation and potentially well not even potentially but very real funding from developed world for emerging markets to clean up their kind of dirty industries and to for example funnel money into the development of renewable energy projects uh, out there so that requires a lot of kind of like thought and also cooperation it's impossible without it and it seems like at least china is making some positive noises which is quite a big one considering the fact it's one of the biggest economies in the world and one of the biggest emitters and one of the biggest emitters and they seem to be also quite um far ahead on the electric vehicles adoption. Mm. Um, So it's not all negative, obviously, but for smaller places, I think definitely they can't scale it alone, otherwise their economies are going to collapse. And elementary, like I am Ukrainian myself, and I just can't imagine, I think for now, the renewable energy prices they are too high you can't just substitute normal kind of like heat and prices with kind of like overpriced tariffs for renewable energy you have to make it manageable yeah and it probably has to come through subsidies and we go full <laughs> circle off to the government and then maybe like ukrainian government getting potentially i'm just inventing here but potentially getting help from the eu or the us because they just can't do it on their own unfortunately yeah of course um well, finally, we've had the German election recently. The Greens seem to be on the edge of at least forming a bit of, of playing a part in a coalition government. Do you think that is going to have an impact on kind of green policy across Europe and green investment? I think on the face of it, it definitely should be making an impact uh, because, well, firstly, now we are in this unique situation when Germany doesn't have a clear majority or one party in the parliament, which means they do need their coalition uh, partners and Greens seem to be one of the natural choices to go into that coalition. And when it comes to Germany, obviously they are kind of quite far ahead in terms of adoption of renewable energy just generally, but because they are one of the powerhouses of the EU, it's kind of like whatever they go into, others have to follow. So in that regard, it probably will be really valuable if they manage to spearhead this effort, I think. And let's not forget that Germany is one of the biggest car manufacturers for Europe and for like around the globe. So if they find a way to incentivize German producers, car manufacturers to switch to electric vehicles, well, you will probably solve a lot of problems right there and then. Um, but at the same time, 
And we also have to kind of like think about the fact that there are a lot of kind of like smaller countries, right, in the mm. EU that have to be kind of like helped put on the right path. And Germany could be that guiding light if they don't fall out, obviously, with certain certain issues. So, yeah, positivity is there. Well, I did read as well in uh, Die Zeit, one of the national newspapers uh, in Germany, that actually young voters were saying that not single party is doing enough to actually mitigate yes. climate change. But like, I'm pretty sure they have a point here, but at least we have some positive signaling. And I think for me personally, it's better than nothing at this stage.